0: Welcome to the Elmer EMC podcast. We want to support you on your journey with God. So here's this week's teaching. Seriously, how far are you willing to go before you give up? And you say, give up on what? Well, give up on maybe your dreams. Your, your aspirations—you never know how close you are, so never give up on your dreams. And your dreams might be a diamond mine; it might be the acquisition of adva- an advanced degree in, well, let's say, basket weaving or something that that is going to be a world-changing thing. Uh, but but, how close uh, will you, how far will you go before you kind of give up on your dreams? It was a week ago, I believe, that. Um, the dream of uh, Richard Branson, the uh, British um, uh, billionaire who uh, just had a few in despair and uh, put it into um, you know like a vehicle that could get just into space far enough to not have to worry about. Uh, that burning sen- sensation on, uh, on return. So good for him. He was so excited. Uh, the Tesla guy is uh, apparently going to have his shot. I don't know if he already had it. Um, but, um, but interesting stuff. A dream that, that came true. And he was so excited. And it uh, and, and was, you know, fun to, fun to see. Um, most of the important things in the world have been accomplished by people who have kept on trying when uh, there seemed to be no hope at all. And uh, that's true, isn't it? Uh, Consider some of the things that would not exist without relentless persistence. Um, You know, light bulbs. Light bulb, you know. Uh, How many tries did Edison make before um, he hit on the right thing? And, and if he'd given up one try earlier, well, we'd uh, have, uh, have to, somebody get up there and light candles every Sunday. But he persisted. And had he not, someone else would have. But, um, you know, you think of things that um, have taken persistence and uh, failures and more failures and more failures and then they hit on it. And what, what a great day when that happens. But, uh, but how far are you willing to go? before giving up on some of the really most important things in your life. And um, now I'm talking about like your friends, or uh, your marriage, or your kids, Um, when things are difficult, when things are painful. um, Would you give up? The hardest thing, it says, hardest part about being a parent is watching a child go through something really tough and not being able to fix it for them. All I am doing is all I can do. And uh, by the way, newsflash, I am no one's fixer. fixer. You are no one's fixer. That term fixer is slung around in the media, but nobody is anybody's fixer when it comes to uh, things of this nature. And sometimes backing off is, is the right thing or or the really the only thing that can to be done just backing off where nobody's fixer it's one thing to stand back back and watch your kid go through something difficult and it may be you know nothing that has been their own fault or their own doing um or maybe there are things that are but how far would you go, and would you ever go as far as to disown them for anything? Think about that. Would you ever go as far as to disown? There are cases uh, before the courts sometimes where kids are um, disowning their parents. It can sometimes go the other way around. Um, and you could think, well, are there any situations where disowning or, or an absolute, you know, separation would be uh, necessary if you can imagine (laughs) the same whisperer that, uh, oh no this next one, but if you can imagine a situation where disowning your own child seems okay then please don't have kids. That's this person's opinion, but what if? What if? What if what? What if you fill in the blank? What if the what if were to happen? And uh, the same whisperer thing comes from some, something called Whisper. Uh, I just got it off Google Images. I don't know who the Whisperer is, but uh, now I understand. It says, why some parents disown their children. You can only push a parent so far, be so disrespectful, and take advantage of them for so long before they just can't take it anymore. Well, um, think about that. How far would you have to be pushed? Uh, could you, in the end, disown? Or, or option number two that be maybe far more godlike in fact would you grieve and pray committing them to the God you've come to know from his self-revelation in the entire narrative of scripture and his self-revelation supremely in the incarnation of his one and only son and think of some of the stories Jesus told of relentless pursuit, lost things, lost coins, lost sheep. In my case, it would be lost keys or wallets, lost sons. And when you read those stories, you realize that what we're getting here is a revelation of a heart, the heart of Jesus, and remember that it's it's true that Jesus is like God, but it's more true, in a sense, that God is like Jesus. No man has ever seen God, but we've seen Jesus. God is like Jesus. And so what this seems to me to reveal is a heart, the heart of God, revealed in Jesus and in his stories and in his actions, his self-sacrifice. A heart that sometimes aches for, for you, for me. A heart that aches. Imagine God's heart aching. You know, God is sitting up on His throne and completely undisturbed. He's got angels and saints singing holy, holy, holy and worthy. Um, Are you, you who created all things, by your will they're created. And He's got these songs going on all the time. You know, undisturbed, undeterred by what's going on. Or, is that but one picture? So we have to look at the multiplicity of pictures in Scripture. Yes, while the holy, holy, the worthy, worthies are being shouted and sung, Scripture shows us a God whose heart sometimes aches to the point of inner turmoil, even conflict, within the heart of God. Do you believe that? Do you think that I'm on track? You know, I'm here, a picture, a picture is worth a thousand words. Think of this, Father. In Jesus' parable, who uh, was essentially told, drop dead so I can have my inheritance and go out from under your um, you know, um, oppressive household and uh, make my own way. And uh, the Father gives the inheritance incredibly. But every day, he's looking down the road. Every day, he's hoping that son will come back. And when he did, the father started running and embraced this returning son who considered himself unworthy to be a son, but could I be your slave? Oh, by the way, next week the topic is love that befriends me. Uh, And it's not love that makes me a slave or a servant. Love that befriends me. Check out John 15 for the basis of that one. But here it is. Here it is. Now you're my son. You're my son. So um, love. You know, it's a revelation of the love that will not ever let me go or you go. It's a love that's everlastingly faithfully drawing us to him, even if we're maybe drifting and maybe not so interested as we might once have been once have been. And yet he's drawing, he's protecting us when we're vulnerable. Telling us what we need to hear. So we have the shot at doing what we need to do. In returning to him fully. If for any reason we're distant or disinterested. And now today in Hosea again. Hosea is a rich resource. Uh, And uh, to it we turn again. Love that will not ever let me go. And today's segment is love whose heart aches for us. Love personified, because God is love, love personified, whose heart actually aches for us. aches when we resist and refuse His drawing and protecting and truth-telling love. A heart that aches when the consequences of our needless and really inexplicable rebellion are foreseen and then come to reality. A heart that aches when remembering all that has been done to nurture and bring to maturity children who will bear the father's resemblance in manner and in heart. So without further ado, Hosea 11, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now if you're a Uh, like June Ellie, who is all over the Christmas stories. I call her Mythoth Christmas. She loves Christmas, and that she's going to pull off a Christmas this year. Uh, It's going to be great. Missed it last year, most of it. But, but, you know, that Matthew takes this line and applies it to Jesus' situation where Herod came along and uh, needed to get out of Bethlehem and uh, went to Egypt, but then... Coming back, he, Matthew pulls up this text. In its original setting, it had nothing to do with Jesus, although Matthew takes it as, you know, kind of an analogy, but, but here, it, it's pointing to Israel when, uh, when Israel was in bondage, out of Egypt, I called my son, So a love whose heart aches for us nurtured us. In our infancy and in our youth. As he did for Israel, so he does for us. And and so there it is. Now, if you were an Israelite living, say in the first hundredth years, or two hundredth, or three hundredth, or three hundred and seventy-fifth year of the bondage in Egypt, and somebody told you that God loved and loves Israel in its infancy and its youth, how would you respond? Well, he sure got a funny way, or not so funny way, of showing it. Because where is he? What's taking him so long? We've been crying for help so long that there are, and, and, and the tears have been flowing. There's no tears left. Our eyes are dry. Our throats are parched. We can't cry and we can't uh, call out anymore. Nothing left but grim-faced determination to survive if we can, to stay under the radar and just eke out whatever living we can, it's interesting how later in the wilderness, as they dreamed of going back to Egypt and thought about the great food and everything else, I'm going, yeah, right, you were slaves, folks. You eked out whatever you could. Funny how the good old days uh, get blown out of proportion in some people's minds. Uh, But then finally, of course, um, God showed up. He showed up in a burning bush, and he spoke to Moses. It had been 40 years, uh, a fugitive. They probably stopped looking for him after, you know, however long. And there he is in the desert, and God calls him and tells him what's going to happen and what he's to do. I'm coming to deliver. Now you go. Well, he said, you know, no, you go. I'll stay here and, and watch what you know. I'm coming to deliver, and I'm doing it through you. And remember the shaky start. He goes, he says, uh, uh, the God of your fathers has told me to come and, you know, deliver you. Well, how do we know? A couple of quick miracles, and they're all in. Goes before Pharaoh, let my people go. Uh, nope. In fact, you people are getting lazy, so now you're not going to get the straw. You've got to gather your straw and make the same bricks, and they're going... Thanks for nothing, Moses. But then God stepped in and he acted, and the rest was history. And, and now, centuries later, this is something that is being reminded to them. Uh, you know, God not only delivered them then, but he embraced them as beloved sons who stood to inherit everything uh, a, a place to call a, a God. Who called them his own and whom they could call their own. And that's why, you know, sometimes when, you know, we think about God being our inheritance, uh, some of the Psalms refer to this uh, line as God is my portion, my portion of the great inheritance, except I get all of him and so do you. It's a great, great inheritance, God is. Uh, But like, you know, any father, sons, father-children relationship when you're dealing with humans. There's going to be conflict, and there was, and there was correction, and there was training, and there was leading toward a more mature sonship. But as time went on, and the ways and the temptations of the world around them beckoned, you know, and it only took, you read, Joshua and they, the conquest happens and Joshua you know, has his little talk with them. Uh, you can't follow the Lord. He's too holy. Yeah, yes, we can and we will. All right, let's renew the covenant. And they did. And then Judges, first couple of chapters. And it says the second generation forgot the Lord. And the book of Judges is a sad testament to what happens when people forget the Lord. And he uh, yet enters in and intervenes through chosen vessels, some of them pretty dysfunctional, to say the least. But when time went on for Israel and the ways and the temptations of the world around them beckoned, you get this verse, the more I called them, the, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offered incense to idols. Why would they do such a thing? Well, you know, here, love whose heart beckons, aches for us, nurtured us in infancy and youth, and beckoned us when we asserted reckless independence. Now, you think about that. that. Independence, rightly understood and expressed, is, is a good thing, although it's never absolute. Is it? It's never absolute. Individual rights... You know have to give way to the greater good, and so it 's never absolute, even in a country who have their celebration uh, independence day and um, you know that's that's a great thing it's 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 stirring, but independence nationally and individually cannot ever be absolute because you see when it comes to the uh, the child-parent relationship honoring our father and mother does not cease the moment that we have left home and begun our own home. Okay. Yes, I, I, you know, when I do marriage counseling, there's this part of it that, um, where you talk about things that you want to bring from the, the, the family homes. And conversely, discussion about some things that, you know, um, that's not going to work in our new home and, and we're going to leave that off. And, um, you know, that, that's okay. That's a good conversation because a new family unit is being created, uh, and, and that's a good thing. And so there's a, a, an independence that, that comes into play, but it doesn't negate honoring our father and mother. And, and, and independence needn't assert that I no longer value uh, the, the wisdom, or assistance, or advice. I may take a different route, but I value you and I value that. Uh, it doesn't have to be a complete break. But the more I called them, it says, the more they went from me. So Israel's push for independence, while well, it sometimes retained uh, a form of godliness, nevertheless was quite prepared to cast off actual godliness and humble dependence on Father God, drawn as they were to the promise of pleasures and freedoms that the ways of the bales would never ever deliver on. And you want to know about the ways of the bales? Read read the Old Testament. I haven't got time to read it to you now. It's twenty to eleven, so we're gonna move on. Uh, that's another conversation. But God says, "Yet, yeah. you know, I'm calling. They're not hearing." Uh, I, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk because Hosea was written to the northern ten tribes um, it was often referred to as Ephraim which was the tribe in which tribal area in which the capital northern kingdom Assyria or Assyria uh, that was the conquerors but Samaria uh, was it was I who taught Ephraim to walk I took them up in my arms they didn't know but I healed them, though. No. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheek. I bent down. I humbled myself. I bent down to them. And I fed them. Um, but, you know, he, he called, but they wouldn't hear. Until they couldn't hear. You see, something sets in if you won't hear, then, then, then you get to a point where you can't hear over the sounds. In this case of their newfound friends and freedoms in the company who had cast off all the restraints they no longer wished to be bound by in the company of the people of Yahweh. Bail parties and celebrations were way more fun. And, uh, you know, they failed to count the cost. He called, and they, they couldn't even hear him anymore. And, uh, you know, in our time, there's a, a growing number, and it's not just young folks as this young lady clearly is, but it's across the spectrum of, of age and uh, all kinds of other background factors who are identifying themselves now as ex-vangelicals. ex evangelicals you ever heard of them? You might have met some. They may not use the word. There are a lot of people who describe coming out of their, from their evangelical-type churches of whatever uh, flavor, all across the spectrum from, say, Plymouth Brethren through Pentecostal or, or Independent Charismatic and everything in between. Um, one, of, one of the guys in my Crest cohort describing his, his home church, said, uh, well, we're, we're charismatic light, and I quipped, tastes great, less filling. But, but anyway, uh, that's that okay. Uh, and you have to know old commercials to even get that. But, but ex-evangelicals uh, are emerging, and there are many reasons, and some of them, in fact, all of the reasons need to be heard, um, because there are many things in our thinking and practice You pointed a book out to me years ago, Trish, David Kinnerman, I think. Uh, Am I on track? And it was something to do with, um, you know, really looking at uh, how youth, I believe it was youth primarily, who are uh, not tracking so well anymore with some of the practices and ways and traditions of evangelical churches. I think I've got that right, and if I haven't, I'm combining three or four books in my head and coming out with mishmash. But, but the, the, you know, there are things. And Martin Luther used to say the church should always be reforming itself. And if it wasn't Luther, it was somebody that followed him. The church always reforming itself. And, and that's necessary as time goes on. Attitudes and practices all too often get entangled with the particular culture or political ideologies which found or in all kinds of other things, and social attitudes and uh, the church from time to time. Needs rethinking and reforming with, with regard to our thinking and our practice. But here's the thing, these folks may be abandoning the traditions others are clinging to, but they're not necessarily abandoning a deepening trust in God. Although some of what is emerging will not stand the test of rigorous and thoughtful biblical and theological uh, analysis. But, but the other thing is that God loves them in spite of their frustrations, even perhaps jadedness, and even in some cases abandoning the faith altogether. Uh, that's happening. It's a trend that we dare not ignore. But does Hosea have anything to say to folks like this? Or indeed to us, who are within the traditional kind of situation. You, you know he does. God always speaks to us through the likes of Hosea. and Maybe you haven't thought all that completely or deeply you know, about the kinds of things that I just threw up on the screen. But you just know that for whatever reason, perhaps... You're no longer drawn, or you know some who are no longer drawn to a passionate and a vibrant practice of faithful dependence on God. And, and you know, you or they may be just kind of quietly drifting away. And, and the longer this persists, uh, the less you may even care. And do you think that God actually notices or cares And uh, the answer, of course, is yes and yes. Love whose heart aches for us agonizes over our inexplicable stubbornness and the inevitable consequences which must surely follow. He he not only notices and he cares, he agonizes over you or someone you know who you're praying for and and who you or they are actually becoming apart from him. Apart from a deepening and vibrant and maturing dependence upon him. And he he can see where you're headed if it's you. And 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 who or what you're actually placing misguided trust in. And so uh, in this case, Israel is told... Uh, you will return to the land of Egypt and Assyria will be your king because you've refused to listen to me. Assyria was the dominant superpower that threatened to overwhelm Israel and later, after the Babylonian superpower that took over, um, had their conquest of Jerusalem, destroying the temple and deporting many and leaving some of the poorest of the poor there to tend the land. Some actually did tell Jeremiah, we're going to Egypt, and Jeremiah says, "You better not do that. That's not going to go well." They said, "We got to get out from under the re- remaining oppression of the Babylonians." So we're going to Egypt. They're strong. They can. And Egypt fell, <laughs> and many of them fell as well. The um, disastrous consequences took place. They returned. Assyria became their king, and so on. The sword rages in their cities, consumes their Oracle priests, devours because of their schemes. My people are bent on turning away from me. And it's, it's almost, um, you know, an oxymoron, the next uh, statement, to the most high they call. Wait a minute, they're bent on turning away from me, but to me they call, but he doesn't raise them up at all. That, that sounds inconsistent. You know, inconsistency becomes a hallmark of those who live lies and uh, who wander from the truth, who no longer give thought to truth. And it's just whatever comes down the pipe. One day I'm running away, one day well, I think I'll call on God. You know, maybe, maybe. Very conflicted, very confused. But here, in, in light of all that, here's the agony of a God who will not force himself on anyone, and who will not respond to the calls made to him to make things better when there's actually no intention in resuming a son-like, childlike trust and dependence and interactive relationship? And yet he says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over? How can I give up on you, even though you seem to have given up on me? How can I... This is the heart of God agonizing over uh, our stubbornness and, and the inevitable consequences that ensue. And yet, here is the heart of God recoiling, recoiling from executing his rightfully fierce wrath. Like, what's going on? What's going on here? He uh, says, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? How can I give up on you? my heart recoils within me. What? My compassion now grows warm and tender. Huh. What do you make of this? NIV translated, my heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. Now, wait a minute. You're angry with these people, You're pointing out the consequences. You're not stopping those consequences brought about by the likes of Assyrians and Egyptians and Babylonians and and just their own self-implosion. But he says, my heart recoils. It it sounds like an inner turmoil in the heart of God. Well, what do you make of this? I mean, is that even possible? Eh, This raises... The most essential question, I think, of who God is at his irreducible core. What does it mean for him to fully express himself as the Holy One? It says, my compassion grows warm until I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst and i will not come in wrath so like what do you make of this what is this what does it mean for him to fully express his holy oneness and we could of course now uh, just detach ourselves and engage in a theoretical ivory tower type conversation the kind that happened in bible college and cemetery seminary um, lunch rooms and ping-pong rooms uh, between slam shots. Uh, we could do that, but, but what we need, what you need, what I need is not speculation, but rather assurance as to whether, God forbid, you've gone too far, so far uh, as to be disowned. Israel, you would think, was kind of right on the line. And the, the issue here is not whether or not you deserve a fierce wrath that would leave you irrevocably destroyed, but, but rather whether or not God really means what He says concerning His wayward people and by possible extension, whether He means this concerning you or those you love and pray for. I am God and no mortal. I am the Holy One. And I will not come In wrath deserved or not i mean this is this is really something this is your god he thought he was all detached and just you know above the fray no he's right in it he's feeling hurting aching recoiling instead what happens here is his fierce love roars You ever heard a love roaring? You're about to. Not from me, from Hosea. I'm just giving you what Hosea, actually God through Hosea says. Instead, His fierce love. Now it's fierce love. It's relentless love. It's reckless. Maybe some people don't like that word. Um, Get the point of what is being said. It's never-ending, overwhelming his fierce love roars for our return. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Hmm. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows from Assyria, fluttering like doves, and I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. Now, Back about 20 years ago, Claren Martin, my lead pastor, and since he's been our regional minister and he's retiring in, a, in, in about a month, good man. He, he, we, he was preaching a series through and we were kind of taking the over, overview of Scripture as it comes to us thematically, and he was preaching a message on, on the the giving of the law and I'm going there aren't any songs about that how am I going to lead worship and connect it and so I wrote one it's called all-consuming fire and a couple of excerpts from this because it kind of grew into a like a major too long song like some of my like nothing else of what I do but it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the Lord of all, the Holy God, the all consuming fire, without a conscience that is clear, a righteousness that lets me near the Holy God, the all consuming fire. All consuming fire, be my purifier as I come to you with reverential fear. O oh, Holy God, I plead the righteousness I need to stand before, the all consuming fire. The last verse skipping a good chunk here it says so don't refuse the voice that speaks obedient worshipers he seeks who trembling come before consuming fire mercy there before his face because the god of fire is god of grace oh holy love fiery love fierce love Holy love that brings about a response sometimes of trembling. But not trembling now because he's going to tell me he loves me in this way and then cast me away. I'm trembling because of the mercy that has been shown to me. and And I'm coming. I know where I've been, I know what I've done. And yet he's loving me and he's drawing me and he's roaring for my return. Oh, holy love of all-consuming fire. They will come, trembling. I will settle them. A lot would happen in between. Now backtrack to Hosea 2. The imagery now is wife rather than son. But the drift is basically the same. The restoration of by God... The God of unrelenting passion and pursuit, as one whose heart aches until every blood bought child's brought home, till every part of his bride stops running and returns, trembling with fear and joy at actually still being wanted. Wow. Israel discovers that that was never at issue. They're wanted, but they're wayward, and there's going to be a process. By which the return must take place. But Hosea 2 says, On that day, says the Lord, you will no longer call me, uh, or you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. Interesting. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they will be remembered by name. No more, and I will take you for my wife forever. Here's the confirmation. I will take you for my wife in, all these words are vital, righteousness and injustice, in steadfast love and in mercy. It's not a willy-nilly, uh, you know, flash-in-the-pan thing. There is a depth to this. Righteousness, justice, chesed, mercy. I will take you for my wife in faithfulness, and you will know me you will know me. The God of roaring love. Chapter 3 sums up things. The Israelites will remain many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Don't worry about that stuff. Without the trappings of temple worship or an actual kingdom and king to call their own. But afterward, the Israelites shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come in awe to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. It may take a while but God's true children will return. They'll seek God. They'll come under the benevolent reign of one greater than David. You see, it's not David raised from the dead that was being uh, portrayed here but the one the Holy One, the Son of God, Son of David, Messiah, the One greater than David, who would come and expand Israel out to include the likes of us so that Scripture will say, if you belong to Jesus, you belong to Abraham, you're part of the Messiah family God envisioned when He called Abraham in the first place. It may take a while. This is going to happen. So what about you? Here it is. Hosea 11. And a little bit of 2. A love whose heart aches for you. That got flipped a little bit, but nurtured us in our infancy and youth. Beckoned us when we asserted reckless independence. Agonizes over our inexplicable stubbornness and inevitable consequences. Yet now recoils from executing His rightfully fierce wrath, and instead His fierce love roars for their and perhaps today your return. What about you? Does any of this reflect your current experience or uh, reflect your understanding and experience of God? Have you heard the holy roar? Have you heard it? Have you responded to it? i got a picture in my office. If you've been in my office, you've seen it. And uh, I took a picture of it the other day, got a bit of reflection of the... the uh, um, what do you call it on the door? But This, this hangs in my office as, as a reminder of the holy roar that called me back years ago. And it reminds me or sets me in mind the holy roar which will be heard when the lion of the tribe of Judah roars for his own in the coming days of universal restoration. Right now, Jesus is reigning till every enemy be put under his feet. And then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom bought and paid for in his blood to the Father. And when that happens, and the end which is really the beginning, God will be all in all. (laughs) When every ache of His heart will give way to eternal joy in the company of His bride who thankfully has made herself ready. So hey, don't let this roar find you unprepared. Don't be unprepared. (laughs) while there is time, If need be, respond to the heart that aches for you. No more resistance. You can resist. Resistance is not futile. Your resistance will work, and there will come a time where God doesn't, as it were, disown you, but He lets you have your way when it comes to things. see, hell will be populated with... The devil and his angels and those who refused his gracious invitation, refused to respond to the holy roar of infinite love, but his heaven will be filled to overflowing with the joy of he and his bride that has made herself ready. So don't let the roar come and go, respond to the roar. Thanks for listening. We invite you to follow Jesus with us and join us on mission with him. We'd love for you to connect with us through our website, worshipataemc.com or on Facebook, just search for Aylmer EMC.